0: Just every game is different. I have myself, just looking at my Steam right now, have exactly 2,752 hours played in that game in the past two years.
1: Some of these sounds, uh, says, are here in the head, uh, and in the ears, uh, but sometimes they are externalized. So sometimes uh, gamers hearing coming from the, this object and sometimes just coming from nowhere.
2: Welcome to Built to Play, arts, news, and culture for the technology-inclined. I'm your host, Armin Bali. Daniel Rosen is out this week. With me instead is the deep-voiced
3: man of tomorrow, Mark Asfar. Hello! Gamescom blew everyone's minds last week by having actual news. So we'll be talking about Life is Strange, Sierra's Rebirth, and Kojima's newest prank. Plus, the internet is filled with monsters, as hackers posted all of Phil Fish's banking information online. And
2: later, Daniel and I learned who watches Dota 2 matches, and I find out why I keep seeing a gun reticle
3: when I close my eyes. Hint it's not because I'm the Terminator. But first, Daniel and Armand head to Nintendo to fight over Smash Bros. Three, two, three, four, five, go! I don't know. I think I'm pretty good at Smash
2: Brothers. No, 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 no. I I really put my best in, and I that what that's what matters.
4: matter if you put in one hundred twenty percent. Keep losing track of my character. I just put in one hundred thirty. well really? You put in ninety and still won. Really? I put in like twenty percent. I was I was I was looking away and like talking to someone. Anyway, in conclusion, bad attitude, give a show. We're putting on
2: quite a
1: show, little.
2: feels a little more intuitive in the first game. The combos are really, really good, but the voice acting somehow feels worse. Enough, Riddles. How can you see Because we're both in Purgatoria.
4: How does the gamepad work for it? Because I felt like the 360 controller was the perfect fit for that game. It doesn't really work with the Wii U
2: gamepad, especially since there's
4: nothing on the bottom
2: screen. There's nothing there. Just the exact copy of what's on the, the main screen. So, I mean, like, it's just like I'm so used to having the analog controllers below or below the action buttons that it feels weird every time I have to kind of mess up the camera. And as a result, it kind of gets a little awkward have <laughs> any to be fair. Something is better than nothing. I this
4: think. was a worse problem with Hyrule Warriors. Hey, with when it comes to Wii U games, like I found that the camera control kind of like it you do gonna kind of have to stop and do camera control for it. But then again, I also found that with Dynasty Warriors in general. I also played a little bit of Hyrule Warriors and I played Midna, who was really cool, but it was just Dynasty Warriors with cute Zelda stuff.
2: I mean the aesthetic goes a long way, uh, I feel like, but one of the big problems—it's still Dynasty Warriors. Yeah.
4: Also, uh, the sound from the, to the oh, the uh, start chime from Wind Waker plays a lot, which makes me feel like my phone is ringing. That's really, really cool. personally upsetting to me. So zero out of ten.
2: Smash Brothers so far has been—I mean. We had some issues early on with the, one of the controllers not being great.
4: There's always there one controller with a kind of a weird C-Stick. But otherwise, uh, then I moved to another controller and I won. And that's what matters. Now that you've won, does your opinion change the game? Now that I've won, it's the best game ever made. Um, <laughs> I, it's, I really like some of the new characters. I think we talked before a little bit about how cool little Mac feels to play around. He feels kind of like a Smash Bros character. Pikachu, who's kind of like my old good pal who, who is isn't Toon Link. It, he feels kind of weaker in some ways, stronger than others. It, the balance is interesting. Characters feel a little different than they did before, but overall it feels much more like Brawl than it does uh, Melee, which is a good thing for me because Melee kind of feels like tarot trash.
2: The 3DS version, I mean, it, the only awkward thing is that the controller is just a little off. It's time! Who won?
4: Luigi. Be, Luigi. Luigi. He's mocking you. I want to see how it feels like in a multiplayer setting. They don't have a, a proper multiplayer version, but they only have one unit of it running.
2: Do you think they're gonna have a significant single player mode?
4: Uh, a good a good place to look is um Sakurai's Kidaker's Uprising, where the game has a really robust multiplayer mode. The single player is obviously the point of uh, Uprising, but there's a lot of smaller stuff within that. There's a lot of like here's a racing game, and here's this, and here's this. The like the trailer for the 3DS version, the all the single player modes had stuff like here's like a Mario Party kind of mode, and here's a an adventure mode, and here's the Smash Run that's in this demo. Here's some training stuff. Here are challenges. Here's the main menu for the 3DS version. features a section called Challenges and Games and More Stuff. So I can only imagine the game has a lot of, just a lot of different like options for single-player content. And I'm just going to
2: look over your shoulder and see what Mario Party is. And yep, it, it continues to be Mario Party. It certainly
4: is Mario Party. You can be Bowser now and be mean to people, I think. I think it's called Bowser Party.
2: Okay. Have either of us tried Kirby
4: yet? Uh, I did get to try Kirby just now. OK, how is it? It is exactly like, it's called Rainbow Curse, Kirby's Rainbow Curse. It is Kirby's Canvas Curse 2, it plays exactly like Canvas Curse. Has a little bit of a new thing with like the Kirby growing huge, but it's such a minor mechanic, it seems. I, it's a great game, I cannot tell you why it's on Wii U. I literally have no idea why it's on Wii U. If it is literally a sequel to that game, and that it's just like you draw on the screen and Kirby yep. gets advantages. But like, there's no reason, to, you should never be looking at the screen. You should be looking at the Wii U game the whole time to the point of, I really don't know why it's not a 3DS game. Ha, is there at least anything about the graphics that makes it feel unique? It's super pretty. It, the whole thing looks like Claymation. It's a beautiful, beautiful game. Uh, I really can't over, like, I really love Nintendo doing this thing where it's between this and Kirby's Epic Yarn and Yoshi's Woolly World of having these like, craft aesthetics to their games it's amazing and nothing like no game this is what hd is like made for like nice colors and doing stuff that isn't just photorealism like nintendo's the only people who are taking advantage of hd but at the same time just from a gameplay perspective i don't see i feel like it's i feel like the graphics are an excuse for it to be on wii u when the gameplay is like this is just a 3ds game I played a bit, bit of a little bit of Yoshi's Woolly World. Okay, which I played the multiplayer of that with somebody, and uh, it sure is more Yoshi. It feels okay. a little bit heavier than right. classic Yoshi, but this it, it feels much more like a Yoshi's Island game than the last like three Yoshi's Islands have felt. Okay, so that's saying something that doesn't mean anything to anybody. But also, it's beautiful like uh, Kirby's uh, Rainbow Curse. It is gorgeous. That wool aesthetic is really, really special. Oh,
2: and it turned, they turn into the yarn balls. Right? I didn't realize this. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. I'm just... This is so... This is way too cute. I know. Mario yeah. maker though. Yeah, Mario maker was it not is, as robust as I thought it. I think
4: it's going to I think we're going to end up with it being more robust as it goes on. I yeah. think it's still at least early on where they haven't finalized all the settings in it. I like the being able to switch between classic Mario and New Super Mario Bros styles. I hope they add more styles yeah, I'm like Mario World, Mario 2, Mario 3, like a bunch of other just give me every option. It would be really cool. Uh, and also giving me other tools from games that aren't just Mario One, because having the ability to have like give me like the the pulley platforms and give me like charge and chucks and give me just give me enemies from all over Mario and, and items from all over Mario and see what happens.
2: Yeah, I mean some of the stuff didn't quite work. I mean putting wings on
4: stuff didn't. Yeah, I think the, that, from what I remember now, what we were trying to put in, we just I was just dropping to- thousands of Koopas to their death. Now I'm just dropping turtles into pits because <laughs> I had a broken childhood. I think I remember now that red koopas are the ones that can fly into their own right. power and green koopas are just too heavy for it. Right, right. So I, there was just, we were lacking a red koopa option, running a fire flower option too, so I have a feeling these are things that'll get added. Yeah. So I think the game, like, this is definitely not indicative of the final content. If Your artistic vision is complete. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> oh no. We've turned Mario into, like, Gary's mod.
2: <laughs> Aw, damn.
4: All right, and Captain Toad, I mean, you played through that? I really like it. It reminds, I mean, it's just like the Captain Toad levels. It is a point-and-click adventure game without the and clicking. It's really fun. It's gorgeous. Reminds me of the scarecrow sections of Arkham Asylum. Yeah. It's basically the same thing. Toad is basically Batman. Anything else? What did we try out? I mean, like, there's... Fantasy Life sure does look like, I mean, it's it's already out in Japan. People kind of know what it is. Yeah. I mean, it, it... it you seems played art Com- academy.
2: Yeah, I mean art, Ac- You've done art academy. Did um, you learned how to draw? No, I didn't. It's okay. not. Every, it's actually. But the biggest problem is that like it's too slow to actually teach you a single part. So it'd be like, oh hey, here's how you draw a smile,
4: and then I draw, and then it's like, and then it goes through a whole tutorial about it's like. You're saying that I'm not, I shouldn't be looking forward to your upcoming gallery. No, no. Yeah, every, you know every drawing of Pikachu's a nude. Just, <laughs> just if we're standing here talking, have you ever thought about that?
2: I mean, Cubone is one of the few animal, the few Pokemon that wears clothes. Hitmonchan wears gloves. That is true. Uh, those gloves are his hands. Can you like,
4: like calcify?
2: Yeah, yeah. They just, they're, they're like sores. I see. Okay. And uh yeah, I mean that's I mean all Project about- Giant Robot. Project Giant Robot. I think I made the superior robot in terms of aesthetics. Aesthetics and design. It- Your robot was uh, approximately a pencil. I've
4: giant hands, tiny arms, no head. They can touch everything with themselves. Slam into him and see if that works. If you can win this with brute force, you did it. <laughs> Just walking it. You defeated we'll- the alien invaders, Japan's hero. <laughs> and I had a robot with giant arms made for hugging, and giant feet made for never falling over until like a f- until, a, until a plane pushed me. Uh oh, taking me down. Uh, do you think this is a commentary of Mr. Driller? I didn't even know
2: how to control that game. I mean, you just walked into the bad guy and they seemed to die. It was, it, it
4: is a tech demo, but yeah. it feels like a tech demo that should have been on, shown off for Wii U like two years ago. Yeah, it would be really cool if that was part of Nintendo Land. Yeah, I yeah. I would have played the heck out of that. I have no idea what game comes out of that. Yeah. So, in conclusion, uh, what's the best Smash Bros. character? I am still think we Fit trailer. That's probably my favorite so far. I know you're wrong, because <laughs> you know who it is. Is it, is it t- Toon Link? It's Goku. All
2: right, that's it for Built to Play here at the Nintendo e- Post E3 Showcase. Uh, you'll hear more from us in the future at some point. At I some know. point, if we don't know. I'm Armin Bali.
4: I'm Daniel Rosen, and better at Smash Brothers.
3: <laughs> now that we're back, let's quickly recap all of the news from Europe. For those who don't know, Gamescom is the world's second largest gaming convention with over 340,000 visitors. That's almost 10 times the number of people who attend E3. It's based in Cologne in the northern half of Germany. Uh, you went to Germany recently, Mark. Uh,
2: any insights you can give us to the German people?
3: Uh, yes, they are incredibly polite, incredibly efficient, and you can buy pretzels uh, every 10 feet in their country. It's fantastic. How, how are the pretzels? What would you give them? They're delicious and fresh. Um, Any particular place you'd recommend getting a pretzel? Uh, The grocery stores have pretzel vending machines where they will deliver you a freshly baked pretzel. I think it was pretzel nirvana for me. That's good to know.
2: Um, But first up, we're going to be talking about the game Life is Strange. So French studio Dote Nod has a new episodic game coming out called Life is Strange. We don't know much about it beyond it's episodic and it's about a woman who discovers her friends have been disappearing.
3: Um... It looks to be an interesting game. Uh, early knowledge seems to point that the game will have some sort of time traveling function to it, or at least the ability to rewind time, although the difference between that and just loading up a quick save doesn't seem entirely clear yet. It's, I mean, one of the things that looks promising is that it does have two female protagonists,
2: it looks like. Uh, Don't has had a history of promoting the idea of making sure that games have um, like female protagonists. Most games tend to have male. The vast majority tend to have, especially shooters and the like. So it's good to see that they're sticking to their guns when it comes to this. I mean, for a long time, um, the studio was told, especially by uh, publishers like Capcom, that they would lose a lot of their uh, audience members if they didn't have a
3: male protagonist. So, I don't know, at the very least, they're trying. Yeah, there is a lot of progress to see female protagonists, and the way they've announced the game, they're really trying to make it sound artistic. Like, they talk about the importance of every little action and how it may have an impact later in the story. The question is, will the game be that complex? Will it be that artistic? Or is it just an interactive novel that they're really trying to hype up? Uh, Sierra spontaneously coughed up all the water they've been slowly drowning in for the last 20 years.
2: So, as it turns out, uh, Sierra, one of the oldest publishing uh, companies in a long time, which has been basically reduced to a name. There's nothing left to Sierra. It's just Activision owns the name Sierra. Um, they're going to be publishing a range of titles from independent studios, including classic uh, Sierra franchises like... King's Quest, Geometry Wars, and new, hopefully new series and new HD remakes. Basically, Activision has a ton of franchises. It doesn't have any idea what it wants to do with, um, so it's lending them out to developers. Um, they're going to be making new games in the King's Quest series, um, starting from the company that made PB Winterbottom, which is a fairly quirky platformer. Um, the first game's out is going to be Geometry Wars 3 G- Dimensions. Um, we have a quote here from
3: Senior Director of Internal Development, Bob Loya. Uh, With digitally distributed games becoming bigger, we were able to make a compelling argument that we could be financially successful doing this. Uh, He additionally says, we're gamers, and we wanted to do this stuff for a long time, and unfortunately there wasn't a path in Activision to do it, because we were focused on big blockbusters. All right, let me throw this out there. Have you played an Activision game in a while? Uh, You mean all the games that are out? I'm pretty sure Activision has cornered the market on them. Well, I don't know. Like
2: the, their big games are basically Call of Duty at this point, and Destiny's coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, do
3: you think of getting Destiny? I'm curiously watching Destiny. Unfortunately, I don't belong to the MMO-slash-FPS crowd anymore. But I definitely get the big blockbuster feel from these guys. They're, yeah. If they were movies, they would be Avatar. They would be the newest Avengers. Uh, they would be, you know, the latest sequel to The Fast and The Furious. These guys, I, as I've seen, only aim big. They don't do small indie films. Which is,
2: I mean, to some extent,
3: there's always the fun in that. I mean, there's
2: I, I, those games aren't ever... Bad explicitly, they're just not very interesting. It's kind of like I'm not all that interested in the new Fast and Furious movie. I've seen the last four.
3: Mm. I don't know. I'm personally very excited to see if Vin Diesel will finally have a beer that isn't a Corona.
2: (laughs) Um Well, I mean, at the very least they're trying to reach out and the only way they know they know how. Um basically they're gonna be lending out. They have all these franchises, they have nothing behind them because they they're this massive company and they're going to be showing up to people smaller developers say hey why don't you take a a try on this which i mean so long as you're that that basically comes at very little cost to them and
3: able gives gives them a way to actually use stuff they've had in the closet for years and years i think that's an exciting concept and i hope that's what they're going to do but for me like i remember sierra i remember being and i'm going to date myself now mm-hmm. a kid playing really lackluster Sierra games on like a Windows 98, right?
2: Oh yeah, Sierra games were garbage for a long period of time.
3: Yeah, and so they're, they're resurrecting a name that's not exactly synonymous with fantastic one-off, you know, experiences in art and video games. They're they're resurrecting a, a very lackluster sort of brand, and then they're announcing such stunning titles as Geometry Wars 3 Dimensions. And I'm not thinking, oh man, that that could be the next step in gaming. I'm thinking, isn't that had a title on an iPad? Yeah. <laughs> like, doesn't that exist?
2: Yeah, I mean, like, that, that is interesting because, I mean, a lot of those kinds of games have moved from the console. I mean, when the first Geometry Wars came out, it was, kind of, it was pretty cool. It was a shooter, and it was for the Xbox 360. It's like, oh man, this is a return to some of these old games. It's a smaller kind of title. But, I mean, those kind of titles now, they basically only appear on the iPad. Like, you're going if to, you, if you're going to get a game that small, that niche, I think the controls aren't really all that complex. Not for Geometry Wars.
3: Not really, and I, just, I don't see it being exciting and being particularly successful for this rebirth of Sierra, unless it's Geometry Wars 3 Dimensions Extreme HD++ to be played on five monitors simultaneously <laughs> with the highest-end graphics card you can get. So maybe they'll pour resources into it, and we can explore the future of Geometry Wars, but until I see that trailer, I don't think I'm going to be excited for this. <laughs>
2: So, Sierra is a really, really old company when it comes to games. Um, they began in 1979 with a single 8-bit Apple II microcomputer, and founders Roberta and Ken Williams, love for storytelling, new technology, kind of drove this big growth in the Adventure game series. Um, they did a, a bunch of notable ones like Leisure Shoot Larry, Space Quest, Quest for Glory, King's Quest. The big problem is that people remember the highlights of those series, like King's Quest 5, which is the best King's Quest by far, but the King's Quest 3 is like utter garbage and anything after King's Quest 5 is also garbage. The, um, I'm sorry to anyone who enjoyed those games, but <laughs> the, there's a There's a good couple of those Space Quest games that are basically incomprehensible with a, when it comes to plot. Um, I mean, Sierra is synonymous with nostalgia. That's, that's their brand. It's old games that you might have enjoyed as a kid because you weren't smart enough to go out and buy a Double Fine game instead. Um, when it comes, I mean, are you looking forward to a Leisure Suit Larry game? Are you looking forward to having a guy in a Leisure Suit walk down and point at Busty Ladies?
3: Okay, so I'm I'm in no way excited for Leisure <laughs> Suit Larry. That might also be because my my enjoyment and appreciation for all things fine evolved past that of a 12-year-old, you know, a decade ago. But uh, I am excited, kind of, to hear about maybe a resurrection for, like, Quest for Glory. Because yeah. uh, I remember playing that the last version of that game before they sort of disappeared. And it's not that that game was great. It's that the game was weird. Yeah. It was like a mashup of, like, seven different genres. And I remember enjoying that quite a bit as, like, what will this game throw at me next? Will it be a puzzle? Will it be a weird component? Will I have it crash on me? Who knows? The <laughs> excitement's abound.
2: Uh, that's it's like that's a very Windows ninety eight thing. Will I have? Will I have the surprise of having this game qu- crashing on
3: me? Yeah. Will, will QuickTime fail me now? <laughs> so I, yeah, I don't. I can't see myself being excited for these games in the way I would like a really great indie release or a huge blockbuster that I'm a fan of. But I will watch them with curiosity, and perhaps one of those curiosities will have just enough going for it that I'll be able to put some money down.
2: Well, uh, the one thing I am actually excited for is the new Silent Hill game, which doesn't look like complete garbage. Um, So, I mean, this is coming from a couple, two really big designers here. I mean, well, one, technically not a designer. We got someone from Metal Gear?
3: Yeah, so we have Metal Gear creator uh, Hideo Kojima and filmmaker Guillermo del Toro, uh, who did Pacific Rim, Pan's Labyrinth, uh, a lot of really great films. And they're sort of heading this resurrection to the Silent Hill series, and it's super exciting. So,
2: and also, like, there's going to be actor Norman Reedus who, if you haven't seen The Walking Dead, he plays one of the characters on there, and he's going to be motion capturing for the, the lead lead character. Have
3: you Do you watch The Walking Dead at all, or...? Uh, I do watch The Walking Dead. I'm a huge fan of the series. I am already trying to predict what Easter eggs from the series will actually be in this Silent Hill game. Mm-hmm. There will be a crossbow, I almost guarantee. It's <laughs> got to be a thing. If they don't, I'll be disappointed.
2: I mean... A lot of the... I mean, Norman Reedus has been complimented on his portrayal of... Um, Jesus, I forgot the name of the character in uh, Walking Dead. But he's uh, he was the brother to um, one of the racist, um, terrible characters who... Yeah. Um, Um, disappeared for two seasons, then reappeared in the governor's town, and continued to be a complete monster. Yeah,
3: so he's in the in the show. He plays this. uh, Not to spoil anything for anybody at home, if you haven't watched season one of The Walking Dead, uh, you might want to catch up on pop culture from four years ago. So let's go get started here, kids. Um, But yeah, so he plays the brother to the super redneck white supremacist type character, and he's a really interesting character in himself. He's like a survivalist, like. Part crazy survivalist, part like tough guy, bad boy, leather jacket, motorcycle, Uh, but he's also really down-to-earth, and he sort of had this rising star moment with The Walking Dead. People are like, oh, this actor's great. We can see him in roles. He's got complexity and depth, and... Surprisingly, he's not going into a big, uh, big blockbuster film, but he's going towards a big blockbuster game that's being headed by these two fantastic creators. Uh, the game's been announced by Sony, um, and it's it's just like this is this this is really interesting, and I think it also proves that video games. Are sort of becoming more and more like big blockbuster films in the film industry, and that it's a very important film and entertainment uh, section for us.
2: Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll get back into that in a sec because I think that is an important point. Um, the game was announced by Sony as PT, which turned out to be a playable teaser um, for a game called Silent Hill. Uh, Silent Hills. Um, the teaser is actually available online if you have a PS4. It's a pretty good game, um, it, from what people have been saying. Uh, Now, this isn't even Del Toro's first time working in games. Del Toro has been, like, a big fan of working in the games industry. He's been trying to... He was trying to develop a horror series with THQ, but THQ went completely bankrupt. Um, so that stuff just never got off the ground. Um... But del Toro has had, like, a big imagination. He's also had a history of having games just disappear, uh, games, uh, movies vanish on him. But I feel like this is a, this is an important point for people transitioning between mediums. The idea that um, filmmakers can lend equal value to games. And that games are just as important that you can have a name like Yelmer del Toro in a role that is actually, like, driving the game forward.
3: Yeah, and I think you see it like in the team they've assembled. So you've got Del Toro, you've got the Silent Hill series and the lore and the background to it, so you've got a recognizable title, you've got a real-world, very good actor going in, and also this really cool release of the playable teaser, which is a yep. really unique format to release and announce a game in. And so what this does, I think, is it's, it's really exciting, and it it's one of those moments where video games kind of become art and it's one of those things I enjoy and we saw that with other uh, major titles that have released lately that have been widely acclaimed like Bioshock Infinite where if you see some of the dev diaries on that they poured so much time into finding voice actors and people to act out the character animations and to base the models off that it's almost like a film there as well and these, these high quality productions blur those lines and become a full entertainment experience you're not just playing for a high score you're not just watching people move around on a screen. You're interacting in a cinematic experience. It's going to be amazing.
2: So the playable trailer is only available if you have a PS4, but sorry Xbox One fans. But good news for you, um, Rise of Tomb Raider is now uh, available exclusively on the Xbox One. The game was on all platforms originally. The game, well, the first game was on all platforms, but it was a bit of a flop. Um, it ended up being profitable in the long term, but just barely. Um, the developer, Crystal, Crystal Dynamics, announced the sequel at E3, not stating any specific platform except for the next generation but now has decided to make the game exclusive on xbox
3: Uh, don't get too worried though it's looking like based on comments from xbox head phil spencer it'll be timed exclusive so you'll be able to play as your skinny british serial killer on your ps4 soon enough
2: I don't think they'd want to exclude PC and PS4, not when the PC mark is growing, and um, not when the PS4 has sold, according to, to Sony as well, um, 10 million units, which um, outranks the Xbox One sale, which apparently have not been doing all that great.
3: Well, it's always hard when a new console comes out. It's you know hard to gain that traction in the market. Uh, so yeah, it's we, we've we seen in the last few years a lot of these fights over exclusives for each console, but it's... Uh, it, It's against the interests of two parties to go one way or the other. Uh, Xbox wants the exclusive, but the producer obviously wants it to sell as many copies as possible. So the timed exclusive is the unfortunate thing we've started to have to deal with. I'm personally still waiting for the new Dead Rising uh, Rising to come out on PC because I want to play that game, but I don't want to buy an Xbox (laughs) One to do it. Uh, So yeah, this is an unfortunate thing gamers are going to have to come to deal with, but it's the compromise we need to have in order to have successful consoles and successful games.
2: In our next biggest story, hackers have dumped all of Fez Designer's Phil Fish personal information online in what has to be a really monstrous attack on, on this guy. So, these hackers originally, or allegedly, came from popular image website, image board website, 4chan. Um, although there's some reason to doubt that, considering that there's they claim to be the head moderator of v, Um but there that doesn't exist and most of the official mods on 4chan have been pretty good at like wiping down anyone talking really venomously about Phil Fish or um or Zoe Quinn, which we'll get into later. Um but last night they posted files to the web uh they posted files to his web on Thursday night uh, that include banking information, financial records, and passport passwords for several of Phil Fish's accounts, including his PayPal, Twitter, and various hosting services. They got control of his website, Polytron, and um, the hackers are apparently targeting him for taking strong outspoken stances on sexism and racism in games and the industry. Um, I think this is unwarranted. I think that's fair.
3: So I think it's highly unwarranted. I mean, if you disagree with their comments, you certainly don't make your stance uh, any more valid by posting someone's personal information and attacking them. You just look crazy. That said, it does sound, something, sound like something that would come out of 4chan and other Internet hate machines, as we call them, where the actions aren't really uh, very politically organized in any way. Rather, they're just there to make a media stink and to scare people off. Uh, i i think it's unnecessary you you have a right to disagree with these people uh even if they are saying wildly reasonable things like we shouldn't be misogynistic and racist in the gaming industry like i think those are things we should strive for but yeah even if you disagree with them and that's your right to do so disagreeing with them in a horribly legal and uh aggressive way like this is just just terrible it's nothing's being gained the gaming community as a whole just looks like another awful Wild West hodgepodge nightmare environment and I don't think any of us benefit from this.
2: Yeah. Um, the one thing is like by posting all this information online they've basically ruined Phil Fish's life. at least for a short period. His social insurance number is available online. Anyone could commit fraud with, with that. Um... They posted access to a lot of his banking information, easy to commit fraud. He had better be calling, uh, he's, a, he's a local Canadian out of Montreal, so he had better be calling the uh, the big guys here being the RCMP. And um, maybe even the FBI, considering this guy is most of the guy who's probably doing this, is most likely American. And these are just, and ultimately, these are gross overreactions to what were basically peaceful, if not, I mean, they're just point. he was making a point, which Phil Fish is prone to do, um, and I, but I don't think that this is a reasonable response or in a way you make an argument with anyone by basically holding their stuff up for ransom in a way that shames them publicly.
3: So the real, the real shame of this is that, uh, in his response to this latest attack, Fish announced that he is fully quitting the gaming industry. Uh, and he has said that he is selling Polytron and the Fez brand so the result of this attack is actually a loss for all of us as gamers and uh, tech lovers we're losing a great uh, mind in the video gaming industry who's developed so much and contributed to our community he's leaving he's he's walking away uh he said no reasonable offer will be turned down i am done i want out he also later tweeted you should all be ashamed like this attack juvenile terrible that it is is making us lose a great mind, and I think that's the real pity. Whoever these individuals are, they're losing, we're losing as a viewing public. I think we should all be sad about this moment that we're experiencing. And all of this, of course, spilling over from the attack on Zoe Quinn, uh, the designer of Depression Quest.
2: So uh you recently played through Depression Quest so let's just get it out of the way what is that game
3: so uh depression quest is uh basically uh like those japanese novel type games mm. but it's online i played a free version literally 20 minutes ago just so i could i could know what i'm talking about right now mm. so yeah it's just it's a a narrative story you play as a character who is um Depressed, And you start the game with somebody who's depressed and who doesn't really recognize their own depression. And, you, and you're sort of given options each day as you experience the symptoms of depression, like being tired or being anxious or having a panic attack in a social situation. And based on your decisions uh, and w- what you choose to do in any given scenario, your depression will either deepen or it'll alleviate to a degree. You'll either feel more comfortable or you'll feel worse. You'll alienate friends or you'll open up to your friends and have them be able to help you. And the goal of the game is to try and simulate what it's like like to be depressed, how difficult it is to seek help, and uh, sort of the, the winding path that it takes to get there, that there's no magic pill or one button or a god code you enter, that it's a slow process of developing friends, developing trust, communicating, and a long journey that doesn't end. Yeah. It's, it's a straightforward game. It's a simple online game where you just get to play through and learn about depression. I actually enjoyed it. I thought it was educational and very responsible in the way it dealt with the issue.
2: And yet it's been attracting uh, harassment ever since she's been trying to put it on green light. People have been giving her death threats. People have been um, telling her to get off the internet. They've been incredibly personal attacks. Um, there was also... Uh, the, the, this harassment is starting to be ra- ramped up because she's managed to finally get a full release for Depression Quest. It's fully out. You can get the game if you want. Um, but it, she's one of the things she advocates also for is things like, you know... I get, he talks about not supporting sexism and not supporting racism and all these things, with it, all these problems that people kind of face within the games industry. And all of this has kind of culminated in a really, really terrible, salacious personal attack on, on Zoe Quinn, where I think she's been put a bunch of her personal life on the Internet. That turned out not to be great. Some of her, some, what was it relationship history? That's not exactly pleasant.
3: Yeah. So the same thing that happened to Fish has happened to her. All her files, all her conversations been posted up on the web. Uh, I, I was reading around online and and one of her exes has posted an entire blog basically talking about his accusations that she cheated on him and why he feels betrayed by her and so on and forth. And it's become this giant dramatic thing online. But but the trick is that there's two separate stories here that people need to keep in mind. And one is there's her as a game developer who says public comments like, don't be racist and don't be sexist. Those are things that we should not be attacking her for. Those are wildly reasonable things. And her video game is also wildly reasonable. And and I just can't believe she's being attacked for that. Anything aside from that, whether these allegations are truth, what happened between her and her ex-boyfriend or other relationships like that, have no bearing on our public opinion that's a private relationship i'm sure plenty of video game developers male and female all around the world have had their own ups and downs and you know unfolding dramas that's not our business as a as a viewing public and it's certainly no reason to attack her and her otherwise really well put together game that is a very useful educational aid People say that there's no problem with uh, sexism and misogyny in the video game industry and this whole situation is a giant flare in the sky that just goes, lol, nope.
2: (laughs) And like... On top of this, I don't think people really care about her ethics or her personal life. I think what they really care about is finding new ways to attack her. Because for whatever reason, they, they feel that this is an excellent avenue for her to, to talk about how... Oh, she's ruining video games because she put out a game that's vague, that talks about an experience she went through. As opposed to a uh, game about a plumber who moves to the right. Like, I... I don't know. This just, this just makes me angry. Um, but in um, less depressing news... Um, Robin Williams may live on forever in World of Warcraft. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the only way I'm going to move through this next story. So, uh, wowhead.com, a World of Warcraft database site, has found a non-player character called Robin in the data for the upcoming WoW expansion called Warlords of Draenor. Um, the non-player character is associated with a 3D model that looks an awful lot like Genie, the chatty Genie from the... Uh, You know, the movie Aladdin? Uh, You might have seen it. It's got a a nice blue guy in there who grants wishes. Um, Did you watch Aladdin? Was that a movie you grew up in your childhood? Of course
3: I watched Aladdin (laughs) growing up. And I got to see the early racist version before they modified it with that line about cutting off your nose in the intro title. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I was back in the day when Disney towed a fine line. Yeah, that was a great movie. And Robin Williams performed fantastic. I think he had a whole bunch of, like, improv that he did in there, too. And some of the comedy and the lines great stuff. Uh, it's nice to hear that it's he's being commemorated in this game, and really he's being commemorated everywhere now, and it's a whole thing to talk about celebrity deaths and how they're commemorated in the media. I'm not going to do that, though. My question is, if World of Warcraft is a new medium in which we can uh, memorialize the dead, what do we say for things like Baron's Chat and constant raids and uh, just online gaming violence? Are we memorializing that as well? Oh, I would hope so.
2: I mean, I, what really should happen is that we start putting statues up to be great raiders of history um, mm. in the middle of Times Square. But maybe right next to Robin Williams, just saying, here's um, some great celebrities and or destroyers of uh, Arthas.
3: I'm going to confess, I was a 13-year-old night elf hunter once, and I don't want that being remembered or recorded <laughs> in any way. Um, but yeah, I guess I guess he'll be in the game to greet visitors until either the game... Uh, finally shuts down, if that will ever happen. I think World of Warcraft is just an omnipresent existence now.
2: It's been making money endlessly, and is basically the reason that Activision can uh, invest so much money in a game like Destiny, because World of Warcraft is just a bundle of cash that keeps expanding as you stare yeah. at it.
3: Yeah, so the next time you start a quest in the game, think of it as the Sierra uh, geometry quest. <laughs> that's, that's what you're actually playing right there. Uh, or or he'll just stay in that game forever until the next batch of 13-year-old Night Off hunters show up, and they won't know who he is, which For... is even sadder.
2: <laughs> For those who don't know, um, Williams ha- unfortunately died uh, a week ago. Um, I think Robin Williams sort of liked to be immoralized in this way. He was a pretty nerdy guy. He liked anime, Neon Genesis, Evangelion, which I've, I've, I've made you watch the first movie of that, and you enjoyed that quite a bit. You loved Neon Genesis, right?
3: I want you to know how much I hate you still, Armand. <laughs> I just want you to know.
2: Um, and he, he played video games. He was a pretty nerdy guy all around. Um, all right, so what was your favorite Roger... Robert, Roger Williams. Robin Williams. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Roger Williams. Uh, oh, my goodness. Uh God, Robin Williams was so central to everything. Okay, I I would have to say Mrs. Doubtfire. Uh, He dressed up like a little old lady and was just so amazingly sweet and honest and educational and hilariously funny in that movie that uh, I, I think I will always remember that one. There's just like a moment in that film where you can see he's like, I love this. I'm going to make you laugh. But I'm also going to say crazy, controversial things like "Don't be a racist" or a misogynist.
2: Yeah, Robin Williams was known for his crazy dialogue, like "Don't be
3: a bad person." <laughs> <laughs> the, um, I mean, you're not going to go with Dead Poet Society. Oh come on, come! I, yeah, everybody thinks that the famous Dead Poet Society, Carpe Diem boys, use the day line, but. <laughs> What, no, I'm not going to be some uh, ironic hipster. It's either too mainstream or too obscure. I don't know which one. I don't want to do it. No, I'm going to go with Mrs. Doubtfire. I'm going to be unique. Okay. How about you?
2: I'm going to go with World's Greatest Dad. It's probably my favorite. It's it's not the best thing he's ever done, um, but it's one of my the, my favorite things I've ever seen him in. Um, it's about a deadbeat dad who, uh, who sung and hangs himself while masturbating. Um, wow. Yeah, it's, and then he has to figure out how to present that in a way that doesn't... Uh, completely shame him and his kids. It's a great movie. I recommend everyone see it. Um, Also uh, rated PG-13.
3: Worth noting, it is available on Canadian Netflix right now. I've got it queued up in my list, and I will be watching it later tonight.
2: And I will be getting a screaming email later tonight. (laughs) Um, Anyway, that's it for news. Thanks for joining
3: us, Mark. Uh, Thank you very much, Ramon. It was a pleasure.
2: So thanks again to Mark and his sultry voice for helping us out in the bind. Now my usual co-host Daniel and I play a lot of games, but there's a few genres we just don't get into. I don't play fighters, and Daniel doesn't play strategy games. But there's one genre neither of us have gotten into, the MOBA. Short for multiplayer online battle arena, it's one of the most popular genres on earth. Games like League of Legends have more players than Call of Duty and World of Warcraft, and the latter of which has at least 7 million subscribers. Dota 2 is another big MOBA, and back in mid-July, it hosted its fourth annual tournament. Color us surprised when we found out that 20 million people tuned in to watch. It's like soccer or something. Anyway, Daniel and I did some research into who watches these games, and the massive tournament that brought them together. Fifteen minutes in, it's over! Newbie convincingly moving their way through the window bracket and they will
3: take the victory against VG Gaming here at TI4!
4: It's called the International, and it's as huge as Dota is complicated.
2: Dota 2 was created by Valve in 2003 as a sequel to Defense of the Ancients. That first Dota was just a modified multiplayer map of Warcraft 3. It played like a strategy game focused on a single character, with all the weirdness that implies. Think of it like chess played by a team in a single forest map. As Daniel said, the game's complicated, but both games are huge and in more ways than one.
4: This year's winner's pot was $11 million. The first place team won more than 5 million and the runners up got more than a million each. That got people watching. Not just the biggest fans either. In a couple major cities, you could catch a tournament in the movie theater in the back of a sports bar. Just like you would the Super Bowl. Here in Toronto, you had plenty of options. At least two movie theaters hosted the event. The biggest art house cinema in the city, the Tiff Bell Lightbox, had it playing. It was also in the Regent Theater, which is one of the oldest cinemas around. Which is where Shane Perrin was
0: that Sunday. We we're doing the raffles at the end, and uh, we had a couple pizzas left over as well. So we, at, at a certain point, we we bought a little bit too too many there. So we were do- raffling off pizzas with some of the Dota stuff that we were giving away, and uh, so one of the guys came up, and once once we called his name, he just starts freaking out, just so excited. He ran down the aisles, just high fiving everybody he could, grabbing his item, and then yelling out right at the end, "Free pizza for my row!" And it was it was just a great time and he, he, it, was, it was quite a highlight. The turnout at the
2: region was pretty good, even if the tournament was a little slow this year. The cinema was about halfway full and news outlets like the Globe and Mail and CBC even stopped by to take a look. 12 noon at this Midtown Theater, fans are already lining up buying tickets, not to watch a movie, but to watch other people playing video games. Shane's a part of eSports gaming events, which ran the gathering at Regent Theater. Until recently, they just planned small-scale tournaments, but those are a pain in the neck. They're three-day events with a ton of equipment and expenses. So, in 2013, they began hosting viewing parties for games like Dota 2 and League of Legends, with the hope that those would attract a bigger audience.
0: When we host stuff in Windsor, we managed to get we managed to fill up at about 120 people at our lands, um, and we kind of cap at for league of legends we have to cap at 16 teams um doing uh tournament bracketing systems for past 16 teams is just a headache and a half you have to push it past a day's uh, a day because it goes past eight hours and realistically we can't have everybody sitting around for that long um but for viewing events like the one we had up in toronto like we had a technically 320 people and uh it's it's it kind of varies from city to city because in Waterloo we did a similar viewing event for a, a, a league. Um, we had about 110 people for a viewing event, and this was at a bar. And then in Windsor we managed to get about 90 to 100 as well for our viewing events. Um, so Toronto is obviously just the avenue for it um, for the for these types of events, anyways. But we're tr- like the land scene in Waterloo has kind of been sh- overshadowed by. Uh, uh, a lot of clubs actually. A lot of clubs hold uh, these events at the university. So when we come in and try to do uh, try and do a land, uh, it's already the, the market's kind of saturated. What's the appeal of Dota Two to you? Ah, uh, it's sh- just every game is different. It's it's amazing. Uh, I have myself just looking at my Steam right now have exactly twenty seven hundred and fifty two hours played in that game in the past two years. Um, I am known to be addicted to video games, but that has definitely taken the cake on the most addictive one for me. It's just really jumping into a, a game, and it's the same characters, same map, literally the same map. Nothing changes. Um, and these characters, uh, you have a pool of about 120, 130, I think. And uh, it really, it's, it's so different every single time, because not only do you have multiple instances of uh, different five sets for your teams, like different, uh, different five characters every time for your team. So the, the makeup is different, but also you have a bunch of different people, like even randoms that you've never played with before, playing those characters as well, which makes them inherently different as well. So the appeal is just variability. Esports like Dota may be growing, but they're not universally
4: popular. Most of the visitors to the show had played Dota or were friends with people who did. It's a hard game to understand, and a harder one to play well. And with costs ranging between one to
0: $4,000 a show, that gets expensive fast. It's, it, I, I was even daunted by the task of starting Dota 2 myself when I did. I, it was my first MOBA. And uh, it, it, it is extremely daunting just looking at the game and seeing a 5v5. And I remember sitting there watching my, watching the first game my friend was trying to show me, and I had no clue what was going on. I feel like Valve is really, really helping you out because even within the uh, within the client, uh, they do have a training training modes, and they have uh, basically these on these uh, sessions where you can go in and just learn to play the game as you go. But there's also uh, multiple other things that uh, that Dota is doing properly, and it's, it's it's it shows with the numbers because at the last TI was there was 300 or 3 million uh, active users. And uh, this year they're at 9 million, so they've tripled their user base. Now, last year, granted, the game wasn't even released yet. It was released just before TI, so uh, it was still in beta at that time. Um, But they're still working on it. But clearly League is doing something right, um, considering they have easily the largest user base for an uh, eSport at the moment. Has hosting events like this, does it
2: look sustainable long term?
0: I do think it's sustainable. I I, I think it, there's just right now, especially we we found out in Windsor that people people really don't like paying for things at all. They think all of all of our lands should be for free. They believe that every viewing party should be for free, um, but they're willing to spend uh, x number of of dollars on RP. And to give to Riot or to to use the microtransactions with uh dota two and pay valve and buy the compendium. like it 's shown like the the crowdfunding for the uh, for the t i four was they started off with a base of one point six million and ramped it up all the way to ten point eight so clearly the gamers aren 't stingy in in that sense they will pay the money people don 't realize we have rents to pay, and uh just like with this uh the region theater we had a uh, uh, 3400 $3, dollars rent for that event alone. Um, so there's stuff we have to pay for, and I, I people just don't realize it. But I think we're getting to a point where people are going to uh, get rid of the idea that you, everything should be should be free within gaming. If you want to support the the industry that you want to see thrive, the easiest way to do it is to uh, not have that. Not have that idea that it should just be given to you because you're a part of it. Um, it's much like a hockey. The hockey fans. Hockey fans don't go to a, run up to an arena and say, "No, let me in. I'm just a fan." It's you pay for your ticket. You go and you experience the event, and that's what it's brought to you for. It's it's a, it's a trial every time, but uh, we're not going to let it get us down for it, and. Uh, I, it's gonna pay off. I, I, I'm a strong believer that it's going to pay off one day and I would love to run these events as, uh, as a living. That would be an amazing career to say that I have a career in eSports in that sense. Because uh, I, I don't say it now because I'm not making a wage. I'm not, I'm, I'm not taking anything. None of us are taking anything back from oh, what we're given in the sense of these tournaments and everything or viewing events, so. Um, but I, I do strongly believe it's it's sustainable Shane Perrin
4: is the CPO of eSports Gaming Events. You can find their upcoming shows at their website, egeofficial.com.
2: Games leave a mark on our psyche. We get an adrenaline rush from winning a round of Street Fighter. We want to throw a controller across the room after an hour of Dark Souls. And sometimes... As you close your eyes and lay in bed, you're still playing that game, just in your head. I know I've settled in for a night after an hour of Tetris, and after I drifted off, I still heard the theme playing. Turns out I'm not the only one.
1: It's a guy that every time that he hear a football commentator uh, to say that the game may go, the football game may go over time, he hearing his head, over time, over time, over time. Over time. You know, this is from, I don't know if you recognize it, it's from a team for dress. And uh, there is other cases, for example, a, a, a guy driving under um, a sign in the road, and he hearing his mind, checkpoint. You know, and there is other cases, for example, a gamer that when he walks in the darkness, uh, suddenly he hears the, the sound that the radio, the radio makes when a monster is close by. And he starts looking around and of course he gets scared.
2: That's researcher Angelica Ortiz Dugotari. As part of the International Gaming Research Unit, she's found that players sometimes hear sound effects long after the game's over.
1: There are sounds that are, that are repeatedly you know, here in the game, and these sounds that are usually very crucial for what the activity that you do in the game. So these are the sounds that we are, uh, we are seeing that gamers are hearing after playing. And some, some of these sounds uh, manifest are here in the head, uh, and in the ears, uh, but sometimes they are externalized. So sometimes uh, gamers hearing coming from the, this object and sometimes just coming from nowhere. There is other cases of gamers hearing the music uh, from the game when they are trying to fall asleep. And sometimes it's the vividness of these sounds is such that some gamers have even stand up from the bed and go to check the console or the computer because they, think they thought that they leave the console um, on by mistake.
2: So would something like um, a VR headset like the Oculus Rift have the potential to have a greater impact then? But perhaps maybe visually in that aspect?
1: Well, I mean, we see that this experience happens even with games that are very old games. Mm-hmm. So not necessarily, you know, our mind is very malleable and we establish association with everything, but because uh, augment technologies, uh, advanced technologies, are they're, they're, um, they facilitate to get more immersed in the game and become more realistic, it's, it's expected that this experience become more memorable and this may have more strength effects, but we don't know.
2: It's not just sound, either. Angelica's worked on other studies that say visuals can stick around as well. Health bars or text boxes can hover in the air after a long playtime. These effects are all a part of game transfer phenomena, which Angelica has been very keen on researching.
1: Well, game transfer phenomena is the transfer of experience from the virtual world to the real life. And this manifests in different sensory modalities. For example, like altered perception, when you keep hearing or seeing something from the video game, also as automatic mental processes, when you keep thinking about the game, or when you've had the urge that you want to do something as in the game, when you, for example, feel the urge to climb buildings, uh, with you do this kind of repetitive climbing in the games, or also when you do some kind of voluntary or involuntary behaviors. Uh, so <clears throat> it manifests in different modalities and some for the core of GTP is GTP is uh, how um this that sometimes this experience can trigger by objects that have been simulating the game and when you see it in real life you know this happen. that
2: part about behavioral changes caught me off guard as you might be able to hear in this next part so this goes well be this can go well beyond just audio
4: and perhaps some visual
1: yeah but well, it's go it go below I mean, uh, it go beyond this i mean this is the third study Mm-hmm. And before we had the automatic thoughts and behaviors. And before this, it was the visual. We was focused about these uh, people actually see, seeing objects, uh, images from the game in the back of the eyes when they are trying to fall asleep, or also seeing, uh, you know, with open eyes when, for example, seeing menus when you are in a conversation, and suddenly a pop up, pop up a menu in the, in the corner of your eyes, or seeing co- maps in the corner of your eyes, and behaviors, you know, when you actually had done some kind okay, of action. Okay, in case you
2: didn't catch that. Game transfer phenomena can go well beyond audio-visual. It's not a simple residual glow or buzz. GDP can lead some people to apply bits of game logic to real life.
1: For example, it's uh, a gamer that, it's uh, a couple of gamers, because I have seen this experience a couple of times. Is a gamer that he saw a bridge, and he wanted to use uh, this, the hook to honk on the, the bridge, and suddenly his, his arm moved involuntarily. So we have these, you know, involuntary movements when you want to use some um, video game element in real life. And this is very common. Sometimes this, is, this happens just as a thought, you know. You feel like, a, hmm, it would be nice to have, a, I don't know, a portal to go home quickly. And then other times, actually, uh, you know, oh, a map. Oh, it would be nice to have a map. And some gamers actually see the map, you know. So it's manifesting in different ways. And according to how the manifestation is how these game transfer phenomena modalities have been divided. And these studies have been analyzed.
2: Before you get worried about whether Battlefield 3 creates gamified Terminators, know that GTP is mostly harmless. It can be annoying, disconcerting, or downright strange, but the effects are temporary. And research suggests that you need to be playing for hours to even experience them.
1: The main objectives of my project against a Phenomena Is exactly to inform and demystify this experience so gamers uh, understand that these are phenomenal phenomena that is manifesting in these cases with video game contents that can be sometimes bizarre, but not necessarily is a sign of dysfunction. If you are having this for, for long periods of time and you are experiencing distress, you should be able to talk about that. But how we talk about that, if we, say, if we say to someone that we are hearing voices or we are seeing hell bars about people's hair, then we think that we are getting crazy, that something is going wrong with us um, as a players. So, so the, then, then, uh, then this is why it's important you know, to distinguish and, and to, to identify that it's a phenomena that has happened for many people. Uh, many different gamers have reported similar experience in the same games. So, and this is one of the objectives, you know, it kind of motivates people to talk about that and don't feel afraid to be stigmatized for their experience. And I strongly believe that this can help us to encourage responsible and safe gaming.
2: In short, if you hear a Marine yell, GO GO GO! while getting on the bus, maybe it's time to take a break from StarCraft. But still, these effects are relatively common. Even Angelica's heard sounds from time to time.
1: Well, I have one that is auditory, That every time that someone told me, wait, I, I hear, I'm coming, you know, this is from resident. Yeah, so resident five. Take it. Okay, I owe you one.
2: Well, I'd like to thank you so much for your time. This has been a fascinating conversation.
1: Yeah, thank you to you.
2: Angelica Ortiz de Gortari is a psychologist and doctoral researcher at Nottingham Trent University. You can find out more about her research at GameTransferPhenomena.com.
4: That's all for this week. I'm producer Armin Bali, And I'm feature's Edgar Daniel Rosen. Built a play was made with the help of... Uh, Shane Perrant. And...
1: Angelica Ortiz de Cortari.
4: For extended versions of the interviews you just heard, check out our website, builttoplay.ca. We're available on Stitcher Radio and iTunes. Leave us a review so you know what we're doing, and more people can find the show. We're usually there at Discover Ryerson at 1 p.m., but tune in anyway. Maybe we're not on, but you should listen. Music
2: for the show comes from the Free Music Archive and SoundCloud, so thanks to everyone out there for making the music freely available for us to use. And extra thanks to the guys at Nintendo Canada for letting us go and see a few games. Just a reminder, we update the website every Sunday. You can find me on Twitter, at Flarkon, that's F-L-R-K-C-O-N, and you can find the whole podcast at Built to Play.
4: And I'm at Daniel underscore Rosen, I'm gonna win. Thank you so much for listening.